you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. I keep cleaning the house, but in weird places. Like, I mean, I'm wiping down doorknobs, but I'm suddenly I'm like, oh, I need to organize these paper clips. Or, you know, it's like trying to have some kind of control, I guess. We reach actress Amy Ryan at home where she's hunkering down with her family. Her movie Lost Girls is one of the new releases on Netflix. And the filmmakers of The Climb don't know when their personal bromance will hit theaters. It was supposed to come out this week. One of the biggest takeaways that Kyle and I have been discussing is we've been so sort of in the rat race of, of trying to you know release a movie and, and super focused on this project, but um, taking a step back and looking at you know just the world at large and where our priorities lie. And how are comedians and performers who make their living on the road writing out these times of closures and shutdowns? It's the Frame Weekend from the Moan Broadcast Center. I'm John Horn. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. Thank you so much for joining us. Later in the show, we have some recommendations for you to stay inspired, entertained, and connected in these very strange times. But first, over the past week, the lights have gone out at live venues around the world in order to prevent further contagion of the coronavirus. And that loss of work has hit a lot of people really hard, including comedians. The Frame contributor Tim Grieving set out to learn how this time of social distancing is affecting the people who make us laugh. Nice, that's most of you. Some of you got nervous. Like, this chick looks Mormon. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. I know what it is. I got a real bad case of all raise your baby face. Just very wholesome. We're just round and white like a chore wheel with eyes. Men don't even picture me naked. They just picture me helping their mom on Easter. Taylor Tomlinson is only 26, but her stand-up career is igniting in a big way. After appearances on Conan and The Tonight Show, she just released her first special on Netflix. You put comedy specials out in the hopes that people will see them and then buy tickets to come see you on the road in the same way like bands put out albums now to ensure that people buy tickets to come see you live. That's where a lot of people make most of their money now in entertainment is live events. Tomlinson had to cancel all of her live gigs for at least the next two months. She was on the lineup for the inaugural Netflix is a Joke Comedy Festival in late April, which also got postponed. I'm on the road every weekend. Unless you're doing a TV show or selling a special somewhere, your main source of income is is doing comedy clubs or, if you're a bigger act, theaters on the road. So I think a lot of entertainers are having to sort of hunker down and just rely on their podcast or their Patreon or their merch site or their savings account. Like you really just kind of have to lay low right now and hope it gets better. Jenna Friedman is another stand-up comic hit by the shutdown. I was supposed to go on like a 20 show tour. I had shows in Vegas, London, Amsterdam, Antwerp. Friedman got her start writing for The Late Show with David Letterman and as a field producer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I love men. Uh, One of my best friends is a man. uh, I'm actually half man uh, on my dad's side, so... She's had to eat some of the cost of her canceled tour. The venues have been really cool. 
uh, flights I'm trying to get compensated for. Um, hopefully Air France will step up because I keep tweeting at them. But Friedman says she learned early on not to rely financially on her stand-up. I mostly make uh, money writing and directing and kind of creating my own content. I'm working on some writing projects, which is easy to do remotely, and I write punch-up and write scripts and stuff. You know, but I also think a lot of comedians, if it weren't a pandemic, we'd be having the same conversation because I think comedy is particularly stand-up comedy in our country. It's you either make no money or you make all the money. There's really no middle class. So if you are kind of like a stand-up in the middle, which I think I am at this point, like you have to kind of supplement your income and you always have had to. One of my favorite improv comedians is Carl Tart. Here he is playing the character of Chief on the podcast Comedy Bang Bang. I am the chief of Acme Industries. Which we is are a private investigating firm devoted to, devoted to one finding client. One Client, <laughs> find, and she's not even a client because you're trying to find her. I'm trying to find her, that whizzling wizard, Carmen San Diego. When South by Southwest was canceled, Tart lost a paid improv gig, and while clubs are closed, he and his improv team, White Women, comprised of black men, won't be doing their monthly show at UCB. And even though UCB performers don't get paid, it's still a loss. Nobody would know who I was if it wasn't for the theater. So with all the podcasts that I've done, with all the TV shows and writing jobs that I've gotten. All that stuff has come from people seeing me perform, and then I end up getting the money for it. Tart is a writer on the upcoming NBC series starring Kenan Thompson, which hasn't gone into production yet. And for now, he's still working, only the writer's room has gone virtual. We are currently working from home on Zoom. The writer's room is such a communal uh, thing, and creative juices kind of come naturally from us just kind of being cool with each other. Right now, not having that interpersonal connection and being over these, like, computer screens, it's kind of weird to, like, try to be like, oh, well, what if this person says this? And then you end up talking over somebody, and then it kind of cuts in and out. He also booked a TV pilot as an actor, which was supposed to shoot next week. Not anymore. Still, Tart knows he's one of the lucky ones. A lot of comedians are servers and bartenders and stuff like that, and with the bars closing and stuff, they're getting hit hard. Yeah, a lot of people who are who are just coming up in comedy and who are just like before they get their job that they like can like kind of rely on. They are all kind of like in a limbo. But when things get dark, Jenna Friedman says we need to laugh more than ever. We're just in this weirdly chaotic moment. So I do think, you know, humor is probably going to be making a resurgence just because we'll need it to get through this time. For The Frame, I'm Tim Grieving. You're listening to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. As production of TV shows and movies is shutting down, thousands of crew members are being put out of work, and many of those people losing their jobs are assistants. They work in writers' rooms, at studios and talent agencies, and many might not qualify for pay or health benefits during the shutdown. Liz Alper is a TV writer and a former assistant. She's the creator of Pay Up Hollywood. Pay Up Hollywood is an organization uh, that started in response to a lot of the assistant abuses and low wages that were going on in the entertainment industry. And our goal is to shine a light on some of the abuses and uh, outdated practices that have been going on and do whatever we can to fix it and bring assistance and other support staff up to a living wage while also eradicating 
uh, the abuses that are still going on in the workplace. So let's talk about what's going on in the workplace right now. More than 70 TV and film shoots so far have shut down. But when you add it all together, we're probably looking at thousands of people below the line who are suddenly out of work. Do you think that's about right? Yeah. if And I think that number is rising every day. So some of those people might be full-time studio employees. They might be casting directors or maybe somebody who works in post-production. But I'm going to have to assume the majority are freelancers. They go from show to show, kind of the backbone of Hollywood's gig economy. How might that latter group be at a disadvantage if they're laid off? Well, especially for the freelancers who are not part of any of the unions, these are people who don't have any sort of uh, cushion to fall back on. Often they're living hand to mouth. Often they're being paid lower than anyone else on the crew. And they are paying for their own health insurance. It's not provided through a union. They're the ones who, when stuff like this happens, they don't really have anywhere else to turn. There are also 1099 employees uh, who don't get to pay into unemployment insurance. And so they don't receive unemployment benefits when you know major shutdowns like this happen, even though it's never really happened before. Uh, in the event that a movie is canceled or a TV show ends, what they have in their bank account is all that they have to survive on until their next gig. I have read that some of the things that have been considered are paying people compensation for a couple of weeks, but based on a 40-hour work week. But there's almost no such thing as a 40-hour work week during production. A lot of the compensation is tied to overtime when people are working 60, 70, 80-hour weeks. So that extra pay, which can be huge, if that goes away, even if you're getting a paycheck for a couple of weeks, it would be a fraction of what you might typically take home, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And honestly, most people who work in production uh, are given 60-hour work week guarantees. So by saying that we will pay you for a 40-hour work week, you are taking away 20 guaranteed hours. If you were making, say, minimum wage of $15 an hour, that's about an additional $300 a week that you're losing. And that's a huge difference. That's the difference between being able to pay your rent, pay your bills, maybe you know, buy your kids food. If that money goes away, you have nowhere else to turn. And especially in a situation like what we're facing now, where everything's uncertain, no one knows when production's going to be coming back, you're essentially digging a financial hole and you don't know when you can stop. We're talking with Liz Alper from Pay Up Hollywood about unemployment in Hollywood. Your organization has helped start a crowdfunding campaign. What kind of people do you think are most in need of help? I, you know, honestly, I think across the board, there are just people in need of help. It's, it's the workers, it's the production folk. We're focusing on um, the support staff because that's who our organization is fighting for. But beyond the support staff, there are, there are crew members, there are studio assistants, there are office workers who have been laid off without pay. So it's really everybody. And even though we started this GoFundMe, we're still urging the studios and the employees in the entertainment industry to continue compensating all their employees because right now the employees are the ones that need to be taken care of and the businesses profit because of the hard work of their people. So right now 
they need to be stepping up and offering financial protection and support throughout this time of uncertainty. It also feels like this is a moment where income disparity in Hollywood and probably around the world could be brought into much sharper focus. So we have studio heads and CEOs who make tens of millions of dollars. Disney's Bob Iger made nearly 1,500 times what the average Disney employee makes. And Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon and the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, worth $100 billion, has been asking its staff to donate their time off for others who might be sick. And I'm wondering if we're to step back, might this be a conversation that could follow after this is all over? You know, this is a conversation that's been had for years. So it's not that these conversations haven't happened. It's that the world hasn't taken notice yet. And so what I think needs to happen is for the public at large to understand that we are facing a severe income disparity where the people at the bottom tend to pay the most in situations like this and who are at the most at risk. And yet their situations never change. They're they're never given an ounce of relief. Instead, they're told that they simply have to work harder to dig themselves out of these financial debts that they've accrued. Liz Alber is a writer and the creator of Pay Up Hollywood. Liz, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much, John. There is no denying these are crazy times, and like so many people, our team has been working remotely. I've been in a quarantine studio at KPCC. All of our interviews are being conducted with people who are also in their homes, so we've been thinking a lot about how to stay connected to each other, to what makes us happy, and we've got some advice about things you might want to do. So my pick is a 2006 French movie called Tell No One. It's a thriller. It's a love story. It's complicated, but if you pay attention, you will be rewarded. Hi, this is Darby Maloney, editor of The Frame. I recommend watching High Maintenance. This is really quite the beer. Can I grab it? Uh, well, yeah, go for it. It feels like pubic hair. Another thing I recommend, if you're a family, is watching One Day at a Time. The new one with Rita Moreno as the abuelita. It is funny and smart, and my family and I thoroughly enjoy it. Other than that, I'd say get outside, look at the sky. You might even see a rainbow. This is Monica Bushman. I'm a producer on The Frame. My first recommendation is for something to not watch, especially alone at night. It's the 2019 movie The Lighthouse. This is not a knock on the film, but in it, it's basically about, spoiler alert, two lighthouse keepers who go crazy in self-isolation. And plunges right through your gullet! So, watch it when you're feeling strong. My recommendation for what to watch is always The Great British Baking Show. Uh, today, Paul and Prue would like you to make the lesser-known cousin of the brownie. And if you have Disney+, Plus, I would recommend the 1973 movie Robin Hood. The music is really great. Hey, this is Jonathan Shiflett, one of The Frame's producers. And this is Evie. If, like me, you've been spending a lot of time with your cat, I'd recommend turning on David Tai's Music for Cats. 
It's great. It's like sonic catnip, basically. Hey, this is Eduardo, the engineer for The Frame. What I recommend is a show called The New Pope. I think it's available on HBO at the moment. And it's actually the sequel series to The Young Pope, which was beautifully shot. Great soundtrack. It's unlike anything I've ever seen on television. So yeah, definitely go check that out. Hey, it's Isaura Seves. I'm the Apprentice News Clerk at The Frame, and my recommendation for this week is actually the album called Either Light by Bundabar. It was just released a couple of days ago, and it's a great indie alternative album, so if you're interested in supporting small artists and finding new music, I highly recommend Either Light. Hey there guys, uh, Frame producer Julia Paskin here with a couple of recommendations while I am self-isolating as much as I can, like the rest of y'all are. Um, so I'm definitely going to try to watch uh, Alien and the sequel Aliens. It has Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, who is an awesome woman action hero. It's got space, it's got gross aliens, it's got suspense, and it's got a cat. So uh, thumbs up all around on that one. So stay safe and don't go outside uh, unless you have to. And happy watching, everyone. Okay, bye. This is Oscar Garza, senior producer of The Frame. There's an album by Van Morrison that was recorded in 1994. It's a live album called A Night in San Francisco. And it opens with a song called Did You Get Healed? And it's fantastically uplifting and beautiful. And I listen to it just about every day. Coming up on The Frame Weekend, two guys, one movie, and how the virus may have put the release on pause, but it's also giving them something else to think about. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. We are so happy to have you with us. In the past week, we have seen movie theaters go from limiting the number of patrons to completely shutting down. They're just closed. In the time of social distancing, some studios have hurried their films onto streaming and video-on-demand platforms. Like The Hunt, it's a bloody satire we covered last week. It opened in theaters just last weekend. It's on VOD starting today. But not all movies are getting that same radical treatment. One film that was supposed to open this weekend and now doesn't have a new release date is called The Climb. In the film, a couple of best friends are riding bikes up a mountain in France when this happens. I don't have to change to be with her, you know? Remember how Marissa made me get that Rob Thomas haircut and Tina made me be an atheist for a year? Yeah, I remember that. Ava isn't like that. She loves me for who I am. And, and I love her for who she is. And I, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with her. Kyle, I slept with Ava. What? What do you mean slept? Like we, slept, we sexually slept together. The Climb is co-written and stars real-life best friends Michael Angelo Covino and Kyle Marvin. Mike also directed the film. This week, I reached them on opposite coasts. Uh, I'm in Connecticut up with my, uh, with my parents. 
Kyle, what about you? Uh, I am in Altadena with my family. Uh, I was looking at a couple of stories. The uh, Here's a story from March 13th from IndieWire talking about your film. The boisterous and innovative buddy comedy was acquired by Sony Picture Classics after its festival launch, and the company still plans to release it on March 20 in New York and Los Angeles. And then three days later, in deadline, Sony Pictures Classics' bromance comedy The Climb will not be opening this coming weekend. So what is it like? I mean, that's three days apart, and obviously a lot's going on in the world. The whipsaw of it's going to happen, it's not going to happen. Now we don't know what's going to happen. Well, you know, what's interesting about uh, um, our experience of how this is all transpired is we were on the road doing a press tour, traveling like almost every day uh, to a different city and and doing local press there. And, um, you know, it it was like you would just see the evolution of of things changing and people responding differently and the news uh, sort of. So so I think we, we sort of we got a pretty good sense early on that things were evolving pretty quickly. And, and, um, I think we were, you know, obviously hoping that, uh, that thing, that life as usual would be allowed to continue so we could, you know, release our film. But, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with like a global pandemic, I don't think, uh, I think it's all put in perspective pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think we for this is Kyle. We 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 sort of think of it rather as like this is a um, just another push. I mean, we've been on the road with this movie for ten months, so we're sort of at this point accustomed to continuing to extend our our run at promoting this movie and and getting it out there. So for us, you know, we're we're looking forward to to when we can show it in theaters and less concerned about. Well, you know, the effects it's had on us looking backwards. There's just no no room for it now. I will add that in September of last year, I interviewed both of you as we rode up Glendora Mountain Road a little bit east of Pasadena. I had a little mechanical problem where my bike would not shift out of a very difficult gear. Now the fun starts. Just, just for the listeners. Thank God I've got the wrong gear. We're now hitting the, we're now hitting the hill. So 5% grade. I, mean, I don't know big how you didn't ask questions right <laughs> If John's out of breath for most of this, it's because he's out of the saddle. Um. But when you think back at all of the things that you've had to do or had the opportunity to do in talking about the, the film, does it make you a little wistful that all of those things right now at least are put on hold, that you can't share the film having talked about it for almost a year now? I mean, yeah. Kyle, you can, you can, yeah, I was going to say for sure for us, you know, we've been, we've been focused so much on releasing at this time and so much has gone into it. And for us, that's, you know, something that we're going to have to, you know, deal with. But in the grand scheme of things, I think as long as we stay focused and as long as we sort of push to be in theaters when all of this passes and people want to get back to, to movie theaters and get back to sort of a, a normality of life and want some entertainment, then we'll be there with a movie that uh, hopefully makes them laugh. Yeah. I mean, I think if this, if this whole thing is showing us anything, it's like, it's like how, I mean, I'm, I'm in my house for three, four days now and I'm already pent up and wanting to go to a movie theater and can't. And so I, I, I it, to me, it's like a very, we don't know what we have until it's sort of taken away. And I think there's something really interesting when we talk about like, Oh, what, what is the future of, of theaters and cinema? And, and then we now can't go to movie theaters. And I, I personally, 
really um, crave that interaction of sitting in a theater with other human beings, but also just getting out of the house for it. We're talking with Kyle Martin and Mike Covino about their film, The Climb. It feels like this could be a moment where the fundamental equation of how movies are released and whether or not they go to theaters and then wait three months before they're streaming or on video on demand might be changing as we speak. Have you guys felt the same way that we might be at a real pivotal moment in the future of exhibition and how audiences see movies? I mean, I think we're still very much of the mindset that theaters are still important. And there's there's a thing to be said about putting your cell phone down and not being able to look at it and being forced to stare at a screen in a dark room and the effect that has of that piece of art on you in that setting. You know, for some of these bigger studio films, I think that's that's maybe a different equation than what we're dealing with, because we have the luxury of of maybe saying, yeah, we'll ride this out. You know, we 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 can release whenever we're going to release because we're going to be, you know, it's the specialty box office, which is a very different thing. And I think the financial burden that we, that we're, we're, our, our, our goals at the box office are very different than maybe, you know, a, a bigger uh, studio film. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. And when the theater is open back up, you know, what, if there is this sort of surge of people going back to the movie theaters right afterwards. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How are you staying sane and how are you staying sane as as artists? Because those are two different questions. Kyle, why don't you go first? Yeah, I, I mean, for, for me, I think the staying sane, I have my family and, and we're all here and, and in this together and playing board games and staying busy and, and staying creative. I think, you know, for as a writer, what you're trying to find is a time where you're forced to sit in a room and quietly work, do your work. So there's a blessing for me on the writing front to be focused and stay stay in and not go out and sit in front of my computer and, and write, which is what I need to do now anyway. So, Mike? You know, there, there's also these moments in time that just allow you to, like, reflect and uh, and gain perspective on, on what's important in life. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that Kyle and I have been discussing is, you know, we've been so sort of in the rat race of, of trying to, you know, release a movie and, and super focused on this project and, and its significance to us, but, um, taking a step back and looking at, you know, just the world at large and where our priorities lie. Mike Covino is the director, co-writer and star of the climb. Kyle Marvin is the film's co-writer and co-star guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the movie. There'll be a lot of pent up demand whenever it is. We do get to see the climb in theaters. Good luck and stay healthy. Thank you. you Take care. Michael Angelo Covino directed The Climb. He and Kyle Marvin wrote the film. They also star in it. Sony Pictures Classics hasn't yet set a new date for its release. It's the Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. The singer-songwriter M. Ward is a member of Monsters of Folk along with Connor Oberst. He's one half of She and Him with Zoe Deschanel, and in his spare time, he has released almost a dozen albums as a solo artist. His latest project is called Migration Stories, and part of its inspiration was family history. His grandfather came from Mexico to the United States. 
M. Ward was supposed to perform at South by Southwest this year before it was canceled. When we Skyped recently, I asked him about what kinds of conversations he's having about releasing an album in such uncertain times. Uh, ever since I started making music, you know, the other half of the equation of recording is touring and performing the songs live for people. As of uh, just a week or two ago, uh, everything's different. We're now thinking of other ways to um, perform, but it might have to do with, uh, you know, watching your computer screen. And um, I'm happy that I can rely on people who've um, been through similar things. But for me, it's all it's all brand new. I want to say it instantly reminds me of some of the themes you're exploring in migration stories that Coronavirus doesn't respect borders. It doesn't respect nationalities, religions. It is an equal opportunity infector. Yes. And I'm wondering, as you're thinking about what's happening in the world, kind of on the pandemic level, and what you're trying to address as an artist on your album, do you see them kind of overlapping about borders and who we are and how we relate to one another? Part of the uh, original idea for the record was to um, see if there is a, a spiritual side of of migration. And um, if there is one, I think music in some way can help uh, illustrate uh, the movement. And um, it's hard to put into words exactly. But um, as I was making this record, I was learning about my grandfather's migration from Mexico uh, to California via El Paso and New Mexico and Arizona. And um, simultaneously, I'm reading all these articles about um, migration. And um, something I was surprised by when I was traveling to Europe is that I was having the same conversations and reading the same kind of articles and realizing that this is a global uh, movement. And um, when I was talking to my family about my own grandfather's story, it seemed to uh, plug right in. And um, because I don't have any uh, photos or journals or anything like this from my grandfather, I feel like music can help fill in some of those blanks. It almost sounds like you approach the making of this album the way a documentary filmmaker might put together a movie, that you're collecting bits and pieces of stories here and there and then kind of weaving them together into a coherent whole. Have you ever gone about putting together an album that way? Um, I'm not sure I've ever tried to put an album, exactly an album that way, but I'm definitely you know inspired by documentaries. And I love how um, it doesn't really matter how many millions of people um, you're trying to tell the story of. When it comes to a filmmaker or, for me, a songwriter, the most I can do is deal with one character's story or two characters and um, try to dig as deeply as I can into that story. We're talking with M. Ward about his new album, Migration Stories. I want to play a song from the album. This one is called Unreal City. And in a dream I hitched a helicopter ride I saw the big one strike Kind of snappy, kind of happy, and it's about earthquakes and tidal waves. Uh, and you wrote this obviously well before the recent pandemic. What were you thinking about when you put together Unreal City? Uh, 
years of articles in, in the LA Times about uh, the earthquake, also uh, articles about migration and um, the fascination of being in, in a new city. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit of where the song comes from. Can you imagine your grandfather who crossed into the United States from Mexico listening to this album in some kind of parallel universe and what might have been going through his mind as he's making that journey and what your music might be saying about people like him who made that journey? I I do think about that. Uh, There is one cover song on the record called uh, Along the Santa Fe Trail uh, that I had him uh, more specifically in mind. It's a song from um, the era of when he did make these big life changes. And um, 1930s, 1940s, it was somewhat popular. I don't think it was ever a big hit, but uh, it uh, was definitely inspiring for the main idea of the record, which is to find a different point of view uh, from what we're um, reading in the newspapers every day. And I think that it's a beautiful point of view when it comes across in, in a song like uh, Along the Santa Fe Trail. Beside you I'm riding every hill and dale while shadows hide you Just like a pretty purple veil thereby hangs a tail I What did you imagine kind of visually as you were listening to the lyrics that were written by Al Dubin and Hugh Williams in this song? I feel like there's a a great moment of discovery where um, this traveler is realizing their place and also realizing that this um, person that they're with is uh, their future. But it's, it definitely seems like some transformation is happening in the song. Uh, not just in this um, beautiful surroundings that he's in, but he's discovering this person that he's with. When I think of everything that's happened about public events, just looking at sports, basketball, hockey, soccer, now baseball canceled, athletes, like, it's like a shark. They got to swim or they die. They got to play or they don't know what to do. What is it like for a musician who maybe you like touring, maybe you don't, but you, I suspect, like playing, how do you make sure that you don't stagnate and that you can continue to do what you want to do, even if there's not a venue or a means to do it publicly right now? Well, I'm lucky, very lucky to have created healthy habits back in high school, which means spending a couple hours a day with the guitar alone in my room uh, or in my studio. So the, the writing process has always been me, myself, and I, and there's going to be a lot more of me, myself, and I over the next couple of weeks. M. Ward's new album is called Migration Stories. It drops on April 3rd. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to talk to you. I love the show. Coming up on The Frame Weekend, how the R&B violinist who calls herself Sudan Archives finds inspiration in amateur musicians on YouTube. I just wanted to hear something that felt like different to me and like a different approach to string playing to get me to like think outside the box. It's the Frame Weekend. We'll be right back. It's the Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. If self-quarantining has you spending way too much time on YouTube, well, our next guest can relate. Sudan Archives is the stage name of Brittany Parks. She's an unconventional singer-songwriter 
who is also a self-taught violinist. And last year, she released her debut album, Athena, and it got rave reviews. When she spoke with a Frame producer, Jonathan Shiflett, she shared some of the YouTube videos that have inspired her music. Hello, I'm Sudan Archives. I actually am really inspired by a lot of like guitar lead artists because I just feel like there's a connection between like that type of music and like fiddle music, you know? It's just like. And the way that they like shred on the guitar, I'm trying to like sing and play, but on the violin. I started playing violin in fourth grade because a group of fiddlers came to my school. And I saw them kind of like standing up and like dancing and playing violin at the same time. That's when I was like, okay, I want to play violin because that's really cool. So I was just, I kept asking my mom and she was like, okay, let's do it, do you violin. But we, since we moved around to so many different schools, um, you know, when I went to another school, they didn't have orchestra. So I basically just kept playing violin in church. I developed learning how to play by ear by playing in church. If I wasn't playing there, I wouldn't be so DIY and just know how to just like pick up melodies and just like play them because I had to learn how to do that with all of their songs. And then I remember in high school, I would just like listen to BT or MTV Countdown and I would try to replicate like the music on the violin. And then I remember people would be like, oh, that's so cool. She can play this Jamie Foxx song. <laughs> Well, I feel like I always, I have this like deep Irish fiddle kind of upbringing, but I made that connection with a lot of like the African folk music and the way that they build their songs though, when they sing and play, it's like the voice plays for a little bit and then it's the violin and then it's the voice and it's the violin. And they're almost like just talking back to each other, but repeating what they're saying. And I probably was listening to a lot of this music when I was making songs like Come My Way. So this is like traditional Sudanese kind of music. This song is um, from Aisha Alafalatia, and she's like one of the first female singers to make it on the radio or something. But I really like the way that the song format, this is probably one of the first songs that I heard from Sudan, and I was like so into just like the arrangement of the song. So it has this like violin rift, you know, and then she like comes in and then it's like they just start like talking to each other. And then he, she has like some man singers too. I thought that was kind of cool. In Sudan, they play like they also play like these other violin instruments. This is like some folky stuff. This sounds like 
It could be like an Irish jig, but it's not. They're in northern Ghana, I think. But he's playing on a horsehair string, and he only has one string, and the top part of the instrument is made out of like a cow head or a snake head, and it's nailed down to a coconut. But it sounds very like connected to Celtic music to me, like fiddle, Irish stuff. This is one of my favorite ones. Like, I feel like somebody's about to be like, And then this other girl, I really like her because she's she just gives me like Bjork vibes, but she's like fine linens. <laughs> her name's Eva Betova. She's Czech, and it's just her and her violin. I've never seen what I don't know what she was doing. She's like plucking with her pinky, but still bowing at the same time. That's hard. So I was listening to all this stuff because I needed to hear, like, some wild, like, unconventional... I just wanted to hear something that felt, like, different to me and, like, a different approach to string playing to get me to, like, think outside the box, you know? Because when you grow up in, like, America, you think of the violin and you think it's supposed to go a certain way and then when people want you to be a part of their band, they want you to play a certain way. And I've never wanted to be in a band because they just want me to play something really cute and pretty, but I kind of want to be, like... In a screamo band playing violin, I'd rather be in a screamo band and playing some weird shit than playing like a cute little note, like, meow, you know? I don't really know how to be that kind of violinist. Why is my presence so That was the singer-songwriter known as Sudan Archives. Her latest album is called Athena. This is The Frame Weekend. The Netflix movie Lost Girls is directed by the documentary filmmaker Liz Garbus. It is her first fiction film, but it is inspired by a true story. In the movie, Amy Ryan stars as Mary Gilbert. She's a woman whose 24-year-old daughter, Shannon, went missing about 10 years ago. Shannon was an aspiring actress. She also worked as a prostitute. Lost Girls suggests the police treated her disappearance like several other sex workers who were murdered around the same time and place with indifference. We reached Amy Ryan on Skype. She was at home with her family. And before we started talking about Lost Girls, we chatted about the new reality of life as an actor with production shutting down over concerns about the spread of COVID-19. Man, it's, it's like one of the first times as an actor, I'm thrilled I don't have a job, you know, um, and my husband is a writer, so we both work freelance, so we have um, the luxury of being home at this moment together, which feels comforting, um, but, you know, uh, but it's still, it's still unnerving, but we, you know, I'm also trying to keep it fun in the house for my 10-year-old. So we got some puzzles and games out and trying to do stuff like that and watching some movies, comedies. and But to be totally honest, just making it up every day. And I keep doing weird things. Like I keep 
I keep cleaning the house, but in weird places. Like, I mean, I'm wiping down doorknobs, but I'm suddenly I'm like, oh, I need to organize these paper clips. Or, you know, it's like trying to have some kind of control, I guess. I understand that. I think what you and I are talking about is what it means to be a parent and to try to protect and sometimes be unable to protect or worry about your kids. And that really goes to the heart of Lost Girls. I want to quote a line from the book that the film is based on by Robert Kolker. The book is called Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery. Robert Kolker writes this, a missing girl is missing only to the people who notice. Mm. Yeah. Pretty much what this film is about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you know, this is the story of, um, as you say, uh, starts off with um, Shannon Gilbert, who is the daughter of um, Mary Gilbert that I play. And when she went missing almost 10 years ago, uh, because she was in the sex trade industry, I think the thought was, well, these are disposable people, or they probably wanted to go missing anyway. They didn't want to be found. Like, why would we spend our money looking for them and our resources? Um, And I think it also speaks to not only the women in the sex industry, but a lower economic scale, like who gets the attention of the media and and the police and, you know, and such. So what our film also does is start to demand accountability, the character Mary Gilbert, and to make sure that these women are not forgotten. And also that they're referred to as mothers, sisters, and daughters, and not hookers and prostitutes. Again, like, a, you know, a sensationalized version of them. She brings a lot of humanity back. And I think it also speaks to not only the women in the sex industry, but a lower economic scale, like who gets the attention of the media and the, and the police and, you know, and such. So what our film also does is start to demand accountability, the character Mary Gilbert, and to make sure that these women are not forgotten. And also that they're referred to as mothers, sisters, and daughters, and not hookers and prostitutes. Again, like, a, you know, a sensationalized version of them. She brings a lot of humanity back to them. Well, it's funny you use those words, because I'm going to play a clip from the film where I think your character uses those words. What about our girls? Who's talking about them? And when they do, it's prostitute, hooker, sex worker, escort, never friend, sister, mother, daughter. They don't care. They blame them. I'm curious when you first heard about this story and what part of it appealed to you as an actor and as a parent. Well, I remember this when it happened in the news that's around the time my daughter was born. So any, you know, once you become a parent, I'm sure you've experienced this too, that all the parent worst nightmare stories that are out there suddenly come like in bold letters across, you know, your, your screen or your newspaper and they're highlighted um, in a very dramatic way. So I remember this then. And then when the script came, um, being, having been familiar with the story, but not necessarily um, in terms of Mary Gilbert and the direction that the script goes and and how wonderfully the script, what, what attracted me to it was that it follows the women. It, it's not taking the time for like a police whodunit and what kind of a person would do this to women. Like we're not following the serial killer and trying to figure out him. We're following the women um, and and what they went through. 
And that was that was new, which is also shocking. <laughs> it's like, oh, let's, this is a good way to tell a story. <laughs> We're talking with Amy Ryan about her new movie, Lost Girls. And your director, Liz Garbus, makes a couple of interesting choices. And one of them is that the film does not spend any time really examining what she did before she went missing. It is not interested for kind of, I guess, prurient reasons going into Shannon Gilbert's life as a sex worker, because that seems irrelevant to the story she's trying to tell. 100%. 100%. And anything else would just feel, you know, like some weird form of titillation. And, um, and you're right. It shouldn't matter if she was a sex worker or uh, a lawyer. You know, um, the fact that um, she was ignored. I mean, that young girl had a 23-minute 911 phone call that they took over an hour to come get her to. I mean, you know, she was clearly in distress. Um, Also, by the way, this phone call, uh, the Suffolk County Police Department refuses to release it. And they've been court-ordered to do so, and they still have not done it. It's very strange. Um, So, again, like, you know, there's still a lot of, um, you know, disregard happening even 10 years later. Amy Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And stay well sanitized. Be safe. So that is it for today, but we have a couple of notes before we go. First, as we all know, this is a crucial time for all of us to be well-informed, and KPCC and NPR play a key role in bringing you news that matters. And that's why we have paused our membership drive, but we still need your support. In fact, it might be even more vital than ever. So please give in any amount at kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. We really appreciate it. And one more note, and this is a tough decision for us, but we're going to put the Frame Weekend on hiatus for a while. That'll give our team more time to devote resources to the daily version of the Frame. We'll still be here Monday through Friday on KPCC twice a day. And the Frame podcast, of course, is always available every weekday in all the usual places. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, NPR One, TuneIn, basically everywhere. We are so grateful to all of you who listen and to those who support us and the station. Please stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We love hearing from you. The Frame Weekend is produced and edited by Darby Maloney, along with producers Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin. Our news clerk is Isaura Aceves. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The Frame's theme music is by Taylor McFerrin. And our senior producer is Oscar Garza. I'm John Horn, the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC. Stay safe, stay healthy, have a great weekend, because we are going to see you back here on Monday.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.